uh, what the law does for us is it reveals sin. Right? So sin is out there in the world, but there's a lot of people who don't see it because they don't have a standard by which to judge their actions. And so when God gives the law, what he says is this is the standard. Everyone is held accountable to God, and in that, every single person falls short. Now there's another side to this as well, and that is that the law then becomes a protection against pride. Um, that, that the law reminds us of who we really are so that we can come to God rightly. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, Before we do, if you would bow your heads with me in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for all that you um, have done and are doing uh, in our lives, uh, the many ways in which you have um, um, set up this whole system, the way that you have given us your word, the way that you have given us your law, um, both to save us and to protect us, to lead us um, and to show us the way. And so we just pray that as we open up your word today, you would use it. Um, Use it to help us know who it is that we are supposed to be. Um, Help us to see truly who we are uh, in relation to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, grab your Bibles. Open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, We're continuing today in our series uh, called Upside Down, uh, which is an attempt by the Apostle Paul to show um, sort of that we approach the world in the inverse way that we should. Because of that, what seems naturally right to us then is a distortion of God's created good. And so Paul is here to call that out, to reveal sort of the backwards nature of our viewpoint and how this affects every part of our lives. Today, getting into the way that we do ministry and choose who to follow. Now, Paul, as he has been doing, is going to use himself as an example here today, as a contrast to the false teachers who have set up in Corinth, to set up this dichotomy so that we can sort of study to figure out where we are off. And I say we, because we aren't supposed to just point out the errors of those foolish Corinthians as we go through this. This is meant to be a mirror for us to see ourselves in. Because we are susceptible to the same exact errors that they were falling into. Now, as we said last week, this section is very direct. Uh, Paul is desperate to get this message across. And we're going to see his urgency today kind of expressed in a few different ways. Um, Some of it's in terms. He uses the term jealousy here. Um, Some of it is in his use of sarcasm, um, which as a sarcastic person myself... I tend to find kind of light sarcasm, but um, he's trying. We also see today his willingness to enter into kind of a, what he calls a foolish way of arguing. Um, he's willing to enter into that because, well, he wants so badly to call these people back from their false pursuits. And whether these false pursuits come from simply following false teachers or the desires of their own hearts, when we allow a twisted perspective to guide us, it it draws us away from God. And so Paul, again, seeing this in the people, knowing that this is going to be a problem in the church for all time, is calling us all away from kind of, well, following what is false. Now, the solution Paul told us at the end of the last chapter is to make God the focus of all your efforts. Both the place that you find your purpose, but also the place that you receive value from. 
He said it this way. There's the last two verses of chapter 10. He said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. Now the irony of this is when we stop trying to gain value on our own, when we make our lives about living for God's glory, it is only then that we actually receive the commendation that we are searching for. We actually receive something to boast in. Something that's far greater than any award or raise or position. What we receive from God is the relationship that we were created to be in. And so today, Paul is going to give us some more reasons to sort of stop playing this upside-down game of self-recognition. And so let's get into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 1. It says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with this readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul begins the chapter by by begging them to sort of bear with him in a little bit of foolishness. Um, In this, he is admitting that he is going to, again, use irony and rhetoric and, and comparison. All of the things that he has been calling them out on over the last little bit. This is sort of a form of... um, well, let's just say, what Paul is doing here is he's entering into their way of argument, right? He is, he is sort of deciding, I am going to argue in the way that they do in order to show the absurdity of their argument. He takes on their style to show the weakness of their position. Now, as he gets into it, um, he basically acknowledges this is going to be foolish. Like, I'm kind of embarrassed myself. I don't want to do this. But bear with me. I have a point in all of this. And the reason why he's willing to go here, the reason why Paul is willing to engage them on this level is simply because of how much he cares for his church. He is willing to do whatever it is going to take to reach them. He says, I have a divine jealousy for them. And so this is the first contrast that Paul is making between himself and these false teachers. His reason for acting comes out of divine jealousy rather than an earthly motivation. Now, we're used to thinking of jealousy as a bad thing. Um, Jealousy is sort of a passion that is wasted on something that is not yours. But in this case, Paul's passion comes from God. His jealousy is divine. And what this means is that Paul is caring for their souls more than he is their approval. He is jealous that the people would give their time and attention to something other than the message that he has preached. And so the false teachers are aimed at all these immediate results. But Paul's concern is for their eternal trajectory. Now because of this, Paul does not talk a whole lot about their current problems or how to make their lives better. 
Instead, he talks about how not to be led away from God by the lies of Satan. He's concerned with a pure devotion to Christ and what it's going to take for fleshly people to not allow their immediate desires to pull them away from the life-altering truth of the gospel. He's encouraging the people, hold on with everything that you have to this gospel that I have given to you. Know it so that you don't turn away when false gospels are offered. This is how he states the concern in verse 4. He says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. His concern is that the people seem quite willing to pick up a false gospel, to, to put away what they have received from him. Now, these other speakers may sound better than Paul. These are the sorts of people who probably make very eye-catching videos, put together impressive events and programs. But what Paul says is, if they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, what they are doing is they are prioritizing the fleshly over the divine. And so we, we need to make sure that we are not allowing our priorities to shift in the same way. That we are not allowing our immediate desires to overwhelm God's eternal truth. Because that is what leads to every single sin. And that's the point that Paul is making when he points back to the garden, when he talks about Eve. Right? Eve was deceived when she was encouraged to follow her heart. Eve chose to trust in her senses and her ability to know what was right over following God. Right? This is how it's described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so false teachers, like the serpent, encourage people to trust in their own instincts over God. To pursue their happiness over a pure devotion to Christ. To pursue the temporary over the eternal. And all of these temptations draw people away from the truth of the gospel. Now Paul admits here, I understand, I'm not the best speaker. I'm not as eloquent as these super apostles. But he says, this does not make me inferior. Because there are things that are more important than how well you can speak or how well you can draw a crowd. What is far more important is whether or not you're actually teaching the right thing. Whether or not you're actually opening up the Bible to see God for who he truly is. And so Paul's knowledge of God and his passion for the souls of the people are what qualifies him and sets him apart from these other teachers. He goes on to show kind of how this manifests itself. Verse 7, he says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. 
As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul begins this section by talking about the fact that he did not take any money. He did not get any payment from the Corinthians while he was with them. Now, this is not a universal call for all pastors to work free of charge, um, as some would claim that it is. Um, and we know that because it, that would go against chapter 9, um, as well as other parts of, of Paul's writing, where he talks about how you support the work of the church with your giving. But Corinth was a very specific case. Right? Paul did not take money from the Corinthians because of what money meant in their culture. And because he did not want anything to get in the way of the gospel he preached. See, when he first came to them, he knew, he knew that this was a port town. A port town where people would come in and people would leave. And people would come in and people would leave. And oftentimes, people would come in, they would beg for money, and then they would take that money somewhere else. And so Paul did not want to be one more person whose message was connected to his money or to their money. And so he approached Corinth as a missionary, using the support that he was getting from Macedonia to to take care of all of his needs. And in this, he was making it clear to the Corinthians that his motivation was not to get anything from them. It was entirely about serving them. And so this is the second contrast that Paul wants to make between himself and the false teachers. He says, I came to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ free of charge, while these other leaders are all looking to gain something from you. Now, the things that false teachers gain from their followers right, are fame, power, and wealth. We certainly still see this alive today. The people who they lead then become resources for them to obtain something for themselves. Now, it isn't that Paul and the other faithful leaders don't get anything from those who they lead. But this gain is not what drives them. The benefit is is a result of being a servant of God, not the motivation. And I'd say this is a really helpful reminder to all of us, not just those in leadership. There are ways of relating to people that elevate service and love, and ways that are mainly about using people for your own gain. There's people who walk into this church every week with the question in their head, how can I use my gifts to serve the people here? And there are people who walk in asking, what does this church offer me? And you can feel the difference in conversation, right? I mean, sometimes you're talking to someone and they, they really care. They're, they're asking what's going on in your life and you can see they're trying to figure out how can I serve this person There's other people you're talking to and you can see them looking past you, seeing what they might be missing out on or who the better person to talk to might be in the room. There are those people who are there when you need help. And there are those people you only hear from when they need something from you. 
Now, let me be clear. This isn't about labeling people. This is not about going through the list of all your friends and going, huh, is this friend selfish or serving? There's another time for that. It's just not this time. This is a chance to look at yourself and ask, am I using my relationships to love others? Or am I using my relationships to get things from people? Right? Am I using people or am I serving them? And the irony of this is when you serve people, you actually gain far more than when you use people. Right? When getting things from people is no longer the goal, you'll actually find that your relationships are more fulfilling and profitable to you as a person. Now, this is a bit counterintuitive because we think you've got to defend yourself. You've got to look out for number one or else people are just going to take it. No. When we spend our time and energy trying to get from relationships, we burn through people. We eventually alienate ourselves and have to live with the shame and guilt of all the hurt that we have caused. But when you serve people, your relationships tend to last. People respond in kind. like They'll actually serve you back. And you'll feel more more joy in each and everything that you receive because it wasn't something you went out and took. It's something that someone gave to you freely. In the end, serving people leaves you not only much happier in your relationships, but also feeling like you've gained far more than when your goal is to get things from people. Now, let me be clear. This isn't actually the point of this section. This is totally a tangent. But I feel like it's important to point out that following God's order, actually living out the way that he created this universe to work, living in righteousness, it bears out. It actually works out better for you in the long run. And sometimes that's hard because we look around and it seems like the people who are the false teachers are succeeding. It seems like they're getting more. Which is why Paul reminds us here, their end will correspond to their deeds. Which is to say, those who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness may have their moment. But they will be exposed for who they are. Now oftentimes that's in this lifetime, and we see it all the time. It's plastered across the news. Where all sorts of of church leaders are seen as the users and abusers that they truly are. But every single one of them, whether it's exposed here and now or not, will stand in judgment before God. They will get what's coming to them as he declares them unworthy. Now the struggle is, before they are revealed as false, many people get hurt by their bad leadership. And this is why healthy leaders like Paul have to warn people away from trusting in what is false. Now, the struggle is it's not always easy to spot. Paul tells the Corinthians that these men claim to be doing the same work as Paul. They disguise themselves like Satan, the angel of light, he says. This means that they will put on the costume of faithful leader. They will have the titles. They will use the language. But all of this is to hide the true motives. And the crazy thing is many people will defend them and even call out those who are going around warning others of them. Paul knows this, and that's why he's like, 
That's why I got to do this other approach. That's why I have to enter into foolishness. Bear with me. That's what he says, verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boasting according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. So as much as Paul has talked about foolish bragging, um, and he keeps telling us that he's going to start bragging, it takes him a while to get around to it. He repeats his, his plea here for us to bear with his boasting. And he's getting ready to finally start telling us why his qualifications are superior. What, what is it that he truly has to boast in? But before he does this, he sarcastically points out that they have pushed him to this. Right? He's basically like, I have to speak to you like this because it's the only thing that you're willing to hear. I will boast because it's the only language you understand. And he's not willing to continue watching as they are abused by these false teachers. So Paul goes, I'm going to foolishly boast of my accomplishments. And he starts by, by sort of leveling the playing field um, between himself and the deceivers. They were apparently using their ethnicity as one of God's chosen people to sort of set themselves up in superiority over the Gentiles that they led. Um, so Paul basically says, as much of a Hebrew as they are, um, so am I. Now, he's already made this clear to the Philippian church. Um, if we're going to have a game of proving our, ourselves in the Jewish system, you're going to lose. Right? This is how he said it in Philippians. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. His point in this is if we are going to look to the flesh for a reason to boast, he says, I have more confidence than any of you. I've done it. I've played that game. I won. I can rest on my bloodlines just like you. But in the end, he says, it falls short. It means little to nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. So this is the third difference between Paul and the false teachers. Paul does not see his authority as tied to his strength like they did. He doesn't believe that he was called by God because he was so worthy. He was the kind of guy that God could really use. No, Paul says God using him is what confirms his calling. And we've seen this over and over from him in this book. The Corinthians want Paul to stand up and prove himself to them. They want him to point to himself and say, this is why I'm better. 
This is why you should follow me. And Paul keeps going on and on about his weaknesses. And so what have they done? They've gone out and found people who will boast in the way that they're looking for. Now, it's important to understand why they want this so badly. Because we fall into the exact same trap. Right? The American church has a big problem with celebrity Christianity. We put people up on pedestals based on all sorts of perceived credentials. And while it's easy to kind of call out these celebrity pastors, these celebrity Christians, the reason why they exist is because people give them this power. People want to be part of the best and most important church. They want to read books by the best authors. They want to be connected to the smartest people. Because they feel like it reflects back on them. If I know the best, then I'm at least close to the best. So people create celebrities so that they can follow them. Which is so stupid. The gospel is the story about how the creator of the universe has invited us back into direct relationship with him. And we start taking some of the puny creatures that he created and going, which one's better? And the more that we put into this celebrity construct, the more we're going to measure success in ministry in celebrity terms. The more we're going to think about how great someone is by how many followers they have, how many books they've written, how much fame and followers they have. I was thinking about this um, as we were studying the missionary movement in our Friday morning Bible study this week. Um, And the comment that the presenter made is that um, the history of missionaries is difficult to teach. And the reason why is because the history of the missionary movement is a bunch of individuals bringing the gospel into remote areas, right? It's like, it's people simply doing the work of Christ and sacrificing for his cause. And most of it is unnoticed and unheralded. My thought was, as we were watching this, man, the church would be a lot better if we adopted this as a goal, right? God is going to bear fruit, And the amazing thing about the missionary movement is some of the places these missionaries went, they converted entire countries. It's not that nothing happened from their work, but they're just not really known. You wouldn't know their names. I would argue that now that Mother Teresa is dead, you probably don't know the name of a single missionary other than the ones we have on the board downstairs and maybe someone that you grew up with who went into the mission field. Now, I mention this because this affects how we think about what faithful ministry looks like. Right? If faithful ministry is big names and followings, then ministry is this thing that is kind of set aside for those people with huge talent. It's for a few people to do. It's confined to the super apostles. But if we think of God's work as God working through weak people, a little, this is a little scary. It means you all qualify. Right? And this is the shift that Paul is trying to make here. He's going to boast about his qualifications, but his qualifications are the exact opposite of what they're looking for. What makes his calling better, he says, 
is that I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Woo! Right? Instead of celebrating his successes, what Paul does is, is, again, he talks about his weaknesses. He reveals his struggles. And he goes, he really goes into it. This is what he says, verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day after I was, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, 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 danger. I added that part. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. I love this because he kind of like wraps it up. He's like, oh yeah. And then at Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Oh yeah, there's another one. I was, sorry, I always love that because it almost feels like a conversation. Where it's like, oh, I got a great story though, I got to tell you. There's this one time I escaped in a basket. Now this is not just a list of what Paul has, has kind of been through. Right? This is him trying to show this, this, this is who I am. This is my weakness. I've been beaten, shipwrecked, in danger, sleepless, without food. I suffer from anxiety. And what does this all reveal? It shows that Paul's strength leads to struggle. Now, the interesting thing is this. This weakness does not live by itself. And what I mean is, Paul didn't just go all around Asia Minor failing. His life was filled with earthly difficulties, as he just listed, but he also had a ton of ministry success. Right? He converted thousands. He started churches. He played a major role in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem out through the rest of the world. But to boast of those things would be to take credit for it. And Paul wants to make sure that he does not get credit for God's work. And so this is the fourth contrast between Paul and the false teachers Paul is unwilling to steal glory from God by making God's work about himself. These other leaders would look at what God did and they would use it to build their own credibility. They would use it to elevate themselves above others. Paul knows that people often connect God's work to the people who he does it through. And so what he says is, not only am I not going to boast about these things, not only am I not going to take credit for these things, I'm going to boast in my weakness. I'm going to make sure that you know exactly what is happening. Paul is going to make it clear that Paul without God is nothing but a bunch of beatings and imprisonments. And once people understand who Paul is without God, then they can be amazed by who Paul is with God. Then they can see everything that God did through Paul as God's work. And we must take on a similar tone. Not trying to use God's good in our lives as a means of making more of ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves about who we are. 
And then we should boast in our, in our weakness so that God gets the glory that he deserves for making us so much more. Reminding ourselves of this weakness is one of the things that we do every time we come together here as a church, specifically in communion. We approach the table because we are sinners who bring nothing to our relationship with Jesus Christ but sin. But in his love, he uses his strength to pay the price and to make us righteous. We are now God's people, not because we have somehow overcome our sin, but because the grace of Jesus Christ has been given to us. We are sinners who have been saved by grace. And so we boast in our weakness so that we never forget how great God's mercy and grace really are. And so come to the table today fully acknowledging your weakness and need. And then take the bread and the cup as Jesus' strength given to you with the promise that he will work through you. He will work through your weakness to do his great work in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... um, the fact that you have invited us into your story, that you allow us to be part of what you're doing. But with that comes the ability for us to to, to think too highly of ourselves, to begin to believe that what we see happening in front of us is because of us. So God, we pray that you would continually show us our weaknesses. Remind us of the many ways we fall short. Give us a glimpse of who we are without you lest we take grace for granted and somehow begin to think that we are more than we are. We can only think this way about ourselves because of all that you have given us, and so we are so thankful, so thankful for the gospel and the grace that has been poured out on us. God, again, we pray that that we would never lose sight of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.